Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Office Hours. This is a Velowood podcast covering general issues related to small businesses and startups. Welcome and thanks for listening in. I'm Kevin Vela, and today I'm joined by Anthony Semino. How's it going, Anthony? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. Sure. So if you guys aren't familiar with Anthony, Anthony is the head of policy at Carta, which is an online equity management platform. BW is a longtime partner of Carta. We've been partnered with Carta for nearly 10 years now. Anthony provides helpful policy updates as well as helps to oversee policy directives at Carta. Carta's public policy teams works to serve as the connective tissue between the innovation ecosystem and the policy world. And I'll be honest that they've been very, very helpful for a number of startup issues that our clients face already. Before he joined Carta, Anthony led policy and government affairs at trade associations representing large financial institutions and worked on the Financial Services Committee in Congress. Anthony, that all sounds very important and fancy. You want to give us a little color on that? Happy to. But first, again, thanks so much for having me. And even more important than that, thanks so much for the great partnership for Willowood and Carta and so much of the ecosystem. We really appreciate it. But yeah, the background is one that I'm very fortunate to have in so far as I've always really enjoyed public policy work. I think it can make a very important difference in people's lives and started my career on Congress working for the Committee on Financial Services, which is the legislative committee that handles the jurisdiction over financial services, banking, insurance, asset management, capital markets. And I was there during the financial crisis, was there during the aftermath when we regulated what is now known as Dodd-Frank. Shortly after that, started representing larger financial institutions, but been at Carter now for around four years and excited to not only be part of this company, but frankly, helping pursue that mission of how do we broaden ownership and support the innovation economy. The fact that Carta has a public policy department was not something I had thought about until I started getting your... Actually, I think the first I learned about it was when you guys started that 83B coalition to try and educate Congress on 83B elections and perhaps allowing us to modernize how 83B elections can be made. But once I understood that Carta had a public policy team, it made a ton of sense to me. I read a canned intro on what that means, but Anthony, we just talk for a sec about what are the goals for you within Carta for your public policy efforts? It's very much a novel function for a company like Carta, but they were a leader in the field and I think we're seeing others follow suit. But importantly, you know, albeit it was a canned intro, but it's still very much what we pride ourselves on is how do we serve as that connective tissue between the innovation ecosystem and the policymaking universe? And so what does that really mean? Well, our goal is to help engage our customers and the builders, whether those are entrepreneurs or funds in the innovation economy, help them understand what's happening in the policy world, whether that's at a state level, federal level or international level. And not only understand it, but navigate this evolving landscape. And while we're working with them on that, we're also learning what's in their way, what are their friction points, and where are they seeing opportunities. And we're trying to take that and bring that back to the policymakers so we can ultimately advance a policy framework that allows them to flourish. And the reason why this is so important is because to us, policy is infrastructure, and it can either bind growth or it can actually facilitate it. And if we do this right, this is a infrastructure that can continue to help companies launch and help companies build, help emerging managers launch their first funds or established managers allocate capital more efficiently. And so what we want to do is make sure that policy framework is in place that actually facilitates that innovation. I think a lot of times when people think about people who do what you do, they might think about people at 
think tanks or nonprofits, like we talked about, you know, your background with some of it before Congress was trade associations or large companies that might have policy departments. I think one of the interesting things about the policies that you guys are trying to help educate people on or influence, there doesn't seem to be another side to it. Like a lot of this stuff just seems commonsensical. Why wouldn't we do this? So I want to kind of explore that. And I think actually the first one we're going to talk about, I might understand why some people would be against it. But I mean, encourage everyone, you know, a lot of you people listening are going to be startup founders or, or work around startups. We're going to try and focus on three key issues that are out there right now. And one is QSBS or Qualified Small Business Stock, Section 1202 of the tax code. We're going to talk about the Corporate Transparency Act, CTA, which is really, really big deal in the venture world right now. And then we're going to talk about the shifting definition of credit investor and how that affects you guys. So let's start, Anthony, with QSBS, Qualified Small Business Stock. You want to take a minute and just explain what that is, and then I'm going to ask you some direct questions about it. And really quick, before I go into this issue base, I think you're right. As I mentioned, this is a novel function for a lot of companies our size. And the reason why we built it was not only what I described earlier about how do we connect those two ecosystems, but... To your point, many companies that are still in that growth phase are not invested in this. And so Carta takes it on as a mission not to solve a specific problem for Carta, but how do we support this ecosystem, which of course helps us grow as well. But it is very external focused in a lot of what we do, working with partners like you to make sure we're understanding what those friction points are and how we solve them. One of which, as you pointed out, is qualified small business stock. And what this is, is the tax provision that in our mind helps drive capital and talent to startups, that riskiest segment of the ecosystem. And how it does it is it enables owners of equity, whether those are investors or employees and covered companies, and those tend to have to be small companies under 50 million in assets or so that have equity in them. If they hold that equity for five years, they're exempt from capital gains when they do sell. Now, there's a little bit more nuance to some aspects of it, but when you think about that as a broad framework, it incentivizes investors to allocate capital to these companies, especially when they're in the early stage. And it also provides an additive incentive for talent and employees to go work at these types of companies. And that's why historically it's actually had bipartisan support. Who would be against QSBS? So QSBS is huge in my world, Anthony. I mean, every startup we get, we want to try as best possible to qualify their stock issuances for QSBS. And as you pointed out, in order to qualify for QSBS, the stock has to be issued by C Corp and it has to be held for five years. And at the time of issuance, the company has to have less than 50 million gross asset value. That's a little different from venture value. So check with your attorney or your CPA on that. But the reality of it is most early stage startups, their stock issuance is going to qualify, which is great for founders and great for early investors. What QSBS allows, it allows for the greater of 10 million or 10x the investment to be tax free. Okay. So think about that tax free. So if a founder might get 10 million, if a founder's selling her shares, she's probably going to be taxed at capital gains rate, which is 18 to 20%. But if the stock qualified for QSBS, then the founder is not going to pay any taxes on that first 10 million in, in exit from proceeds, which is going to be roughly 1.8 to $2 million in savings and tax savings. So Anthony, what's the argument against it? Like why would someone want to get rid of QSBS? It's the same argument that you see in a lot of tax debates, and that is, what is it costing the government versus what it can do to allocate that money elsewhere? And then the second part of that is who's benefiting from it. 
When you and I see QSBS in action, it is incentivizing those founders to start companies and rewarding them for taking that risk. It's incentivizing early investors, whether those are angel investors or networks or funds coming in at that series seed or series A level. And of course, it's rewarding those employees that are willing to go work and help build these companies. That said, in the policy world, we've actually seen this come under attack last Congress when they were trying to pay for a larger spending package. And their argument was wealthy investors are taking advantage of this. And our goal is to curtail them from doing so. And in doing so, not only are we limiting wealthy investors from gaining even more, but we're also saving money on that. Now, it's a perfectly rational conclusion for some people to think that there are going to be wealthy investors benefiting from this. But by curtailing it, you are solving one problem at the expense of a larger issue. And just because somebody happens to be making money on it doesn't mean it's still not the right incentive as to driving capital into this ecosystem. And importantly for us, that's long-term capital. That's the exact type of capital you want investing in these companies. And on the other side of it, even if somebody were to realize a substantial gain on their QSBS shares, whether that's an investor, a founder, or an employee, they've got to hold those for five years, as I've said. But when you think about that distribution, that's income that they might have been foregoing to work at that startup or to found that startup versus they could have been making more money elsewhere. And so they took that risk. They tied up that capital or that time. And for five years, they might have realized a gain. But when you think about spreading that out, accompanied with the risk, that's the exact type of incentive we want to keep in place to ensure that if we're going to continue to build companies that have long-term vision and ambition, we need to keep in place. And we were able to, at CARTA, form a coalition similar to what we did on 83B, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly, where we had interested parties, whether those were folks like the National Venture Capital Association or Angel Capital Association, or companies themselves or investors themselves really engage and go to Congress almost every day for a period of time, meeting with members, doing the education, and really beating back what was proposed to curtail this. And as a result, QSBS stands today. And our goal is not only to keep it where it's at, but right now we've actually encouraged and we have legislation in the House that expands the parameters of covered entities and lowers the holding time from five years to three. So this is proposed legislation because my next question is, where are we with it? So currently, it's an enacted law. I think every time there's a big piece of tax legislation, this comes up for debate, whether it should be modified or cut. And so currently it's legal. And I've been hearing for 15 years that this thing's going to be cut. And then I remember when the Obama tax reform came, people were sure that QSBS was going to be cut and it wasn't. And then when the Trump tax legislation came out, people were sure that it wasn't going to be. So what current modifications are being proposed, Anthony, and when would the next potential period that this could be on the chopping block be? So the modifications that were proposed last Congress were to curtail the amount of gains you would be exempt from if you made over 400000 a year, which again, sounds like a large number, but we're not talking about one year. We're talking about five years if that gain were over 400000 So amortize that over five years is actually quite you know, a reasonable number, and in some cases, a small number for compensation that you would forego in order to work or build a startup. And so that's what was proposed. We were successful in beating that back. And it was actually in an introduced package. We had it stripped out. 
even though that package, which is eventually signed into law, we were able to pull QSBS out of it. What is important to note is to your point, this is always going to be on the chopping block. And that's why it's very important to show up. And even though Carta is well beyond QSBS eligibility, for us, it's not about what Carta can do. It's about the broader ecosystem. And so we're continuing to show up. The coalition is still very active. And we've had introduced legislation that's passed the House Ways and Means Committee or Tax Writing Committee that would expand the types of covered entities and lower that holding period from five years to three. Now, let me just say at the outset here, I am not overly optimistic we can get this expansion signed into law. We're continuing to work and do everything we can to, but at minimum, what we wanted to do was tactically shift the debate from how do we make sure that we're not getting this thing cut to how do we talk about how important this is and we should be talking about expanding it. So if we can continue to focus the debate there, more members are going to be educated and on the record that this is a good thing. And so the next time somebody proposes that they cut QSBS, it will have a less receptive audience and the debate will be taken on the more offensive side versus that defensive side. So no matter what, even if we're not successful in getting this signed into law, it's great defense through playing offense. All right. Well, that's very helpful. It's good to know. QSBS, really, really important for startups. It's a great tool or reason to encourage more investment. You know, and a lot of what we want to do is make it easy, make access to capital for startups as easy as possible. And I would just say one last thing on how we operationalize that. It is still a very misunderstood or unknown factor for so many people. And Carta and you are doing a great job of trying to educate more of the ecosystem around it. But this is something for founders to not only use to raise capital and how they think about it, but also when they're talking to employees, making sure that those that would be eligible know about it because it's a reward that they should get for taking that risk and helping build so many of these great companies. Okay, so let's stay on the capital raise side of things and let's talk about the accredited investor definition. If you listen to some of our other podcasts, you know that accredited investor is a very important definition that is used for qualifying for different securities exemptions. If you recall, anytime you issue securities, those securities either have to be registered, like on a public exchange, or they have to be exempt from offering. All startups use exemptions. And there's a number of exemptions that are available, and it is way easier to use an exemption if you're only offering your securities or the stock that you're selling in your company to accredited investors. But a lot of early stage companies don't know a lot of accredited investors. The founders don't have a lot of high net worth accredited investors in their network, or it's too hard to close around only with accredited investors. So then when you raise from unaccredited investors, it increases the compliance burden for the regulatory framework, where it makes it harder to qualify for the different securities exemptions. So this definition of accredited investor has been changing recently. And Anthony, could you tell us what recent changes we've seen and what's being proposed? Yeah. And I think you did a great job of summarizing it and just how I think about it in one sentence from the investor side, not so much from the company side. So how you typically qualify as an accredited investor has historically been through financial means and specifically income and net worth thresholds. So from an income perspective, an individual needs to make more than 200000 or join income with a spouse of more than 300000 typically in the two most recent calendar years. So they want to see a track record as well as that expectation going forward. The other way to qualify is to have a net worth of at least $1 million. 
but you have to exclude your primary residence from that value. So for the most part, to qualify as an accredited investor and get access to the ability to invest in these growth stage companies or these funds, you have to pass this wealth or income test. There has been a recent expansion on accredited investor. And two years ago, under the previous SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, they, for the first time, decoupled the ability to qualify as a credit investor from wealth and income and actually created sophistication on ramps. Specifically, those sophistication on ramps were if one were to pass a securities licensing regime, things like the Series 7, the Series 82, or the Series 65. So this was a very positive step. However, in our minds, it didn't go as far as people actually think it went. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that. But in addition to that, we think that there are other ways to expand the on-ramps for more people to become accredited investor. And that will have important ramifications, not only for those investors who will then have access to the growth and returns of private companies, but also the diversification that private companies can provide their portfolio. And importantly, create pools of capital through which private companies and funds can raise money to ultimately build their business. You said, Anthony, it did go far enough, right? And I want to highlight that for a sec because I always thought it was rather ironic that you've got sophisticated parties and educated parties like attorneys who are running these offerings, who understand the laws, but who themselves, unless they made a certain salary, wouldn't qualify to invest into this or sophisticated CPAs or whatnot, accountants, right? People who really truly understand the law and help their clients to understand how to use it and how to stay on the right side of it, but they themselves wouldn't qualify. And so like you said, the government added some other licenses that if you have these licenses, you will qualify as a credit investor. But like you said, I don't think it went far enough. I also think it's interesting if you think about when these securities laws were enacted, like the credit investor definition comes from the 33 Act. So 1933, which was just a few years after the Great Depression. And here we are in 2023. And we're still being governed by laws that were created 90 years ago. I mean, we have come so far technologically and with access to information and the way people can educate themselves and company reporting, even private companies, the amount of information that they provide to their investors or ongoing information. But still, we're trying to be governed by laws that were created almost 100 years ago in the wake of an economic crisis. So it's silly that that exists. So there, there's my thoughts on it. But Anthony, you were going to talk a little bit about how we could even further expand the definition of credit investor. Well, there's actually a lot to unpack there. And maybe I can start out with that last sentiment you had on the frame here. And just as background, the reason why this definition exists is because it governed who has access to private companies, which historically and to this day have a different type of disclosure regime than public companies. And because there was less information around it and less visibility into these types of private companies, there was assumed to be greater risk. And because the SEC didn't want to move into kind of that merit regulation of you can invest in these companies or not on a company-specific basis, they ultimately built a regime that used financial resiliency as a threshold insofar as somebody's ability to withstand loss. But they did that through the investor protection lens. And in my opinion, accredited investor is investor protection through investor preclusion. And to your point, Kevin, markets have evolved so much where not only are private companies growing and private markets are 
massive today, but fewer companies are going public and those that do, do so later in their life cycle. And so for people not to be able to invest in them means they're gonna miss out on that growth curve. And they're also not gonna have any diversification outside of public markets if they can't get into things like private equity or real estate and other areas. And so I think it's just something that does need to be reassessed more broadly. To your point though, the SEC opened up this new avenue, but didn't go far enough. And I think that there's two buckets here. I don't think it went far enough because the three areas that it really did try and open up, those sophistication tests around Series 7, Series 82, and Series 65, are all still very tightly held. And what I mean by that is, in order to take and pass a Series 7 or Series 82, you really have to be sponsored by a financial institution, meaning you have to work for one. Now, anybody can take the Series 65 if they're willing to put the work in. That said, to qualify as an accredited investor using the Series 65, you have to be held in good standing and have specific licensing regime in place. And so even if you take the 65, you are still excluded unless you have that state licensing done. And so really, it's a small subset of people that can qualify through those on-ramps. What we want to do is expand on-ramps for more accredited investors to be able to qualify through different means. And the example you used of lawyers that are running many of these deals not being able to qualify outside of financial means is a perfect example. We want people with this professional expertise that might qualify with some sort of experience to be able to qualify as a credit investor. We want people to be able to take sector-specific paths forward. So if you're a medical practitioner, you might be able to invest in medical companies. We want folks that are able to take a sophistication exam similar to Series 7, Series 82, or Series 65, but not have to be tethered to a specific financial institution, but be able to do it on their own. We want people that might be able to allocate a portion of their portfolio into private markets or to invest through somebody that's got a fiduciary duty that can help manage their money. There's a lot of different on-ramps here, and our goal is to expand that access and provide more people exposure to these growth companies. So that's something to keep an eye on. And I think the broader goal here is just to make it easier to raise capital. We understand there have to be some regulations around it. We just can't have people running around signing up investors from wherever. But for a long time, you know, Anthony, I'll tell you something interesting. When I was a young attorney and I didn't have senior venture attorneys who knew how the world worked and told me how to do things. So when I was a young attorney, I would learn a lot about the securities exemptions from kind of more established old school attorneys who are doing the old private offerings. You do a PPM and you send it out to a hundred people and you have a number on each one and then they send them back to you. And so they were so nervous about this new way of raising capital. If you're, are you sending PPMs across the internet, right? What if it gets into someone else's hand? And I didn't have anyone tell me that this was okay. It looked to me from what I could tell that this was how all venture was doing it, but I didn't work for some big venture firm. So I showed up at a conference where there was a partner from Wilson Sonsini speaking, and he was this really, really amazing venture attorney. I read all of his blogs and I happened to be on their side of a deal with him one time and I learned so much from him. But the first time I met him, I went up to him and said, hey, I got to ask you a question that I'm dying to know the answer to because all the attorneys I talked to, no one wants to take on this risk. How do you do X, Y, Z? It was basically, how are you raising this money without using a full PPM, without kind of following the letter of the law? I mean, if you read Reg D really closely, you basically have to create an offering statement to raise $250,000. And he just looked at me and said, no one's doing that because if we did that, how would anyone ever raise any money? It would cost more in legal than to raise the money. So it's just an inefficient system and no one is doing it. I said, wow, okay, that makes sense. And then if you go back and you just look at the laws, you know, Reg D 
used to be three components, 504, 505, 506, right? There used to be three carve-outs. 505 went away. 504 became 505 in terms of size. And 505 went away because it was just silly. I mean, this was 80, 90-year-old legislation. And if you were following it to the letter of the law, it made it nearly impossible for any company to actually raise capital. So I think over time, markets win. And that's a good thing. And I think we want some market efficiency. But codifying this and making it easier, like broadly easier to raise capital is a good thing because that's what leads to innovation and innovation leads to job and job leads to tax base. We, we want job creation to get more tax base. I think you've rightly pointed out the framework and the friction points that need to be managed through this process when raising capital. But I would even go further back to the threshold of when we look at SEC data and CARTA data, it's become clear, and the SEC actually put this out, that the typical distance between a lead investor and a series seed or series A company is 100 miles. So capital is mobile, but proximity still matters. We need more accredited investors building more angel networks across the country to make it easier for emerging fund managers and for entrepreneurs to raise capital, because not all of them can go to Sand Hill Road. Not all of them can go to New York City, but that doesn't mean they've got a monopoly on ideas. So building more pools of capital through creating more on-ramps for accredited investors can help companies and funds raise money. And then to your point, the exempt regime is hard enough to navigate. And now we're seeing the differences between 506B and C on things like general solicitation. As companies are fighting harder to raise money in this current environment, our goal is not only to create more capital opportunity, but how do we streamline Regulation D, which for those that have raised capital and private markets have largely used Reg D, how do we streamline it, make it easier to understand, make it easier to navigate? And that's a longer term engagement we've got with the SEC and happy to talk through on that front. But it's not just about the investor, it's about what that investor does to seed that capital, which then can allow that to be raised by the companies and the entrepreneur. Do you think you can ask the SEC to update their Edgar Form D filing software from something within the last 40 years? Is that possible? I think it's still a DOS-based system. I, I feel like there's a rite <laughs> of passage to have to go check out Edgar. <laughs> So on this same notion of we want to make it easier access to capital, I like the on-ramp word. I'm going to borrow that, Anthony. So having an on-ramp for raising capital, one of the things is once you've raised the capital, then you have compliance. And we don't want to make compliance so difficult. You know, public reported companies spend millions of dollars a year with lawyers and accountants on compliance. And that's important. They're publicly reporting. They have public stockholders. They need to do these things. Well, we definitely don't want to subject early stage companies to that. And for those of you founders who are out there, you'll know that when you first start your company, you're probably not gap compliant. It's too expensive to comply with. But after you get past your A round, maybe even after you pass your seed round, your investor is going to make you be gap compliant. That's going to increase your compliance costs. Well, I think one thing we're worried about with increased compliance costs is this Corporate Transparency Act or the CTA. So, Anthony, can you explain to us what the CTA is and then what is CARTA doing to make this so it's not so onerous on startups? The Corporate Transparency Act is a law that's on the books that's currently being implemented by the regulators. And the goal is to really identify who owns specific entities so regulators can trace money and ultimately address and combat illicit financing. To do so, however, they're changing the reporting regime for companies. And what they're now doing is requiring companies of a certain size 
and in this case, it's going to be smaller and emerging companies to provide FinCEN the information around their beneficial owners. And the information includes the name, birth date, address, and acceptable identification of a beneficial owner of that particular entity. And a beneficial owner is typically defined as somebody that owns at least 25% of the entity or exercises substantial control. And this is a major shift in compliance requirements. And it's not something a lot of people or a lot of companies are aware of or being talked about, but this will go into place January 1. And for all existing companies, you'll have 12 months to comply and furnish this information to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And for new companies, you'll have 30 days to comply. So Kevin, I'm sure every time you're working with a company, whether it's launching or an existing company, you're going to have to have this conversation with them. And to your point, they're focused on building. They're focused on how they think about products and how they structure their cap table. And now to say, well, you've got to provide this information to FinCEN is another hoop they've got to jump through. So is everyone going to be subject to the Corporate Transparency Act? It's a really good question. And as I mentioned, ironically, it's for the smaller companies. And in particular, if you are a company that's not registered with the SEC, so your securities aren't registered with the SEC, if you're non-public, but you have fewer than 20 full-time employees or less than $5 million in revenue, Ultimately, it's trying to get at these small companies, because if you're a larger company, you've probably got some sort of reporting obligation already in place, and the government believes it can track who the beneficial owners are and where that money is moving. For these smaller companies, which whether they're an LLC or a partnership or a C-Corp, which many of our companies in the innovation economy use, they don't have that same reporting regime. So this is going to be putting that in place so FinCEN can track who owns what and where that money is going eventually. So these companies are now going to have this additional burden of reporting this, figuring out the FinCEN system. And then the other thing that we're not really talking about is some investors, this could deter investment for whatever reason. There's just a lot of private people out there. A lot of people are investing through trusts or through offshore entities. I mean, our tax regime allows this, almost encourages this, right? It's like the tax regime encourages this kind of cloak and dagger mentality with respect to where your money is. But now we're going to go to the startups and say, well, you guys have to be super transparent. And I hope your investors are okay with that. Anthony, we represent a number of clients in regulated spaces, mainly gaming. And so one of the things about gaming is when you go to apply for licenses, those state licensing entities want to know a whole heck of a lot about everyone who owns at least a certain percentage that licensing process turns off a lot of investors into the gaming space. And now we are essentially adding that for everyone. I can't imagine there's been a lot of positive reaction to this new legislation. It has its detractors, both in private sector as well as in the policymaking universe. And that's why I always try and start out with the goals they're trying to solve, because they are laudable goals, trying to combat illicit financing. And I almost always try and come from the perspective of policymakers have positive intent. And at times, the implementation of that policy has adverse consequences, some of which is obvious and those trade-offs need to be made, some of which is unforeseen, and we need to make sure that we're raising that. In this case, we're at a situation right now where they're close to finalizing the rulemaking. And I'm sure there's going to be opportunities over the course of this regime's implementation to refine it. But right now, they've issued two of the three rulemakings. It will go live January 1. 
And what CART is trying to do is lower some of the barriers and friction points, to your point, where if we can work with partners like you, when a company is launching or an existing company to communicate what needs to be communicated, CARTA can help with the equity management aspect of it, of identifying some of those beneficial owners, pulling together, working in conjunction with you and the company, what that information needs to look like and furnishing it to FinCEN. That's our ultimate goal because what we want to be able to do is help build that infrastructure so those entrepreneurs and those companies can just focus on what they're doing and that's running and building a business. This is going to be a friction point and our goal is both on the policy side as well as on the product side and working with partners like you all is to solve as much of that friction point as possible. So Carta could be a good solution set, right? Or solution provider for this because if all your information is in Carta already, perhaps there might be a way for Carta to connect directly with FinCEN to report this information. And I seem to remember sitting in on a call where there were some engineers talking about that directly and how are we going to connect these databases so that we don't have a bunch of electronic filings being done by these small businesses. This is going to push us to push our clients even more so to use an online solution like Carta or another Carta-like tool. And I think that's a good thing. It definitely makes our lives easier having all of our clients' information about their investors, their investment, share register, board consents, data rooms, investment history, all in one place digitally. It's just better it's better than it living in a client's Dropbox or Google Drive or whatever folder, or even living in ours, in the lawyers, because you want all that stuff centralized. So that part of it is going to hopefully, it'll get to a point to where we understand FinCEN's, which is an organization I didn't even know existed until just a couple of years ago, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Hopefully it'll help them and then not be too much of a burden on the companies. Okay. So we mentioned 83B elections earlier. These are really important. And any startup founder knows how important an 83B election is. And what an 83B election does is allows you to accelerate the recognition of income for your shares that would otherwise be vesting over time. So one of the misconceptions about 83B elections out there is that you use 83B elections for stock options. You don't. An 83B election is used for shares that you already own or have a substantial risk of forfeiture. And there's some edge case scenarios when an 83B election is used in LLCs and, and limited partnerships, but typically with the context of a startup, it's for founders. Founder shares are issued all up front, and then they are subject to forfeiture if the founder doesn't meet whatever the vesting schedule is, traditionally monthly over four years with a one-year cliff. Okay, Just almost every startup has that same vesting schedule, monthly over four years with a one-year cliff. The founder is supposed to file an 83B election within 30 days of receiving the shares to tell the IRS, hey, IRS, I'm going to go ahead and recognize the income on all of these shares, which should usually be nominal because you're a startup, even though I might not invest all of them. I might lose them all, right? If I don't hit my vesting schedule, I might lose them. Otherwise, you might be responsible for paying taxes on the increase in the value of the share of the spread between fair market value and the initial issuance price over time. And for a high growth startup over four years, those last couple of years could lead to a lot in tax obligations. So it's a pretty big deal. It's a big, big pain in the ass to deal with. This is a constant problem. And for years, the IRS insisted that you had to have wet signatures on this. You, they wouldn't accept digital signatures. So Carter was really instrumental in pushing through during COVID, the IRS abated that requirement for a little while. And now I believe we're in a period where we're trying to have that 
permanently removed to where digital signatures are okay. And then, Anthony, what other updates can we expect regarding 83B elections? I would just point out that the IRS started providing electronic signature relief for a number of forms during COVID. 83B was not part of that. It wasn't until our coalition, and when I say ours, I don't mean just Carta's, it was you, it was everybody else stepped up and said, this needs to be part of it. It's a friction point in and of itself, but especially in that pandemic environment. So just to be clear, and thank you for clarifying that, during COVID, the IRS came out and said, we will accept electronic signatures for all of these forms, but we won't accept it yet for 83B. Well, it wasn't a negative exclusion. They didn't include it on the list of like 15 other forms until we petitioned and engaged. And I think we had 46 signers on the letter, including you and your firm. And then the next time, like the next time they issued that letter, it had 83B at the bottom. And I bring this up not for just patting ourselves on our back, but to say it's why it's important to engage in policy. It does make a difference. I know whether state, federal, international, it just seems some amorphous concept and abstract. It makes a difference, especially when founders show up, the practitioners show up, the fund managers show up. It can really change outcomes. But so we were able to get that temporary relief. We have the ability to extend it a few more times. It's actually expected to sunset in October. We've had a number of good conversations. We're optimistic it will extend beyond October. And as the IRS is using a lot of its newly appropriated money to revamp its operations and systems, we're optimistic that they will build a digital portal for this. That will take time, however. One of the ways we can make sure it's prioritized is twofold. One, keeping the pressure from industry up. And you've continued to be a great partner on this of engaging, signing coalition letters, bringing this up to the forefront as whether commissioners are testifying or in the press. So we're continuing that drumbeat. In addition to that, in a Congress that has little bipartisanship, we were able, working with our coalition partners, to get legislation introduced that has two senior Republicans in the House, both on House Financial Services and the Tax Writing Committee, and two senior Democrats in the House, to introduce a bill and are really pushing it. Our goal now is to get a companion in the Senate. But this type of pressure will either result in that bill, which would provide electronic signature and electronic filing on a permanent basis to get signed into law. And at minimum, even if it doesn't get signed into law, it's forcing the IRS to prioritize 83B versus other forms. And so that's why it's so critical, because to your point, this is a very manual, high friction process. And I think we all know somebody that missed their 83B election. And as a result, in some cases, they're able to go to a firm like yours and figure out maybe we can reissue these shares. But in other cases, they are just left to pay the taxes. Yeah, there's definitely guys out there end up paying you know hundreds of thousands or millions more in taxes than they otherwise should have. The ability to file electronically would be huge for this. And so Carta's automated a lot of the filings because to your point, it's not just for founders, though. If you're early exercising your shares as an employee, that's still a share transfer. So we've automated that. We're in the process of trying to automate it for founders as well, where there is a physical aspect of it, but we handle that part for you. But the goal will be to get permanent, not only e-signature, but electronic filing. And that's what we're working a lot on the policy side. Anthony, this has been really, really great. Hopefully, those of you out there listening understand how important it is that companies like Carta are trying to advance these policies. And you can see there's actual tangible benefits or tangible you know, results from this happening. So, Anthony, again, really, really appreciate you joining us and helping out. Can't wait to send this out to our clients. 
So that ends this episode of Office Hours. My guest today was Anthony Semino of Carta. Thanks a lot, Anthony, for joining us. Kevin, thanks for having me and thanks so much for the partnership. You can find show notes for this episode, including a link to subscribe to Carta's policy newsletter. I highly recommend you sign up for Anthony's newsletter. It's a great way to stay informed on all the relevant issues without having to go hunt and find them. So take a look at our website, bellawood.com forward slash podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions for a topic you'd like for us to cover in the future, you can email us at podcast at bellawood.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. The Vela Wood podcasts are recorded with the help of Radio MD, based in Chicago, Illinois. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at velawood.com slash podcasts. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at velawood.com.